This is Eklas. And this is Mecca. And you're listening to Identity Politics, a podcast on race, gender, and Muslims in America. Mecca, tell the people where to find us. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Acast, honestly, wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find us elsewhere online at identitypoliticspod.com, on Twitter at identitypolpod. You can also find us at facebook.com slash identitypolitics. And remember, if you like what you hear, don't forget to tell us what you think by leaving us a review on iTunes. Yes, cosine underscore double click. Now, let's jump <laughs> to today's episode. Let's do it. On today's show, we're going back to school. With a little help from our friends, we take a trip down 106 Central Street. That's Wellesley College. You've heard us talk about it, but now you really get to know the bad, good, and just the really, really sad. Later on, I talked to my little brother, whose experience was nothing like mine, but also he shockingly spits major wisdom. You'll want to hear that. But before we get to all of that, let's hear from Nina Daoud, PhD candidate who's interviewed black Muslim women from around the country. She gives us old folks, that's the pre-Uber, pre-Black Lives Matter age, the scoop on what it's really like for black Muslim women navigating college campuses. Hey guys, so we are here with Nina Daoud, scholar in training, someone who I enjoy both personally And I guess this podcast counts as professionally. So we're excited to have her here today to talk about college, talk about her own experiences, her research, um, and even some thoughts and ideas that she has for students that are navigating that space today. So thank you so much for joining us, Nina. Thank you so much for having me. A fun fact, I often tell people Mecca has a podcast that's basically about my dissertation. And so like, I basically... If you want to read a dissertation about it, you could like read my dissertation. But if you just want to have fun, just like listen to the podcast because it covers all the cool parts um, and none of like the boring theory and scholarly references. So (laughs) that's that's definitely something (laughs) I really, really like about the podcast. And so thank you so much for having me on. So Nina, you know, I've talked about this openly that I, I was black in college. I socialized in black spaces. Um, I did not socialize in Muslim spaces. Um, a lot of reasons for that. Um, mostly I just feel like everyone college is weird because it's like this setting where everything feels so like important and intentional, but it's a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds kind of like calling the shots of like the social scene and structure and like how everything is like divvied up. And so really you're getting a lot of your knowledge and information from like where you came from. Right. So it's like, if you're in a setting and you're recreating like a Muslim student org or whatever, like you're going to parallel a lot of kind of the issues that are in the larger communities, because if you grew up in those communities and like, that's what's going to happen. So I found myself personally more drawn to um, black spaces than Muslim spaces. Um, And I know that your work kind of crosses both of those like huge categories. So what was your um, evolution of, you know, how you socialized with regard to like Muslim spaces, um, both in college and since? I definitely struggled with that as I think back to my college experience. So um, like Mecca, I also is just like, it was like all black everything. Um, (laughs) I got to college and I was like, okay, I'm going to like 
check out this whole MSA thing. And I went to like the first meeting and we did introductions. So we went around, said our names, where we're from, where we're living on campus, like the freshmen um, all lived um, on North campus. And so as soon as I said where I was living, they all kind of looked at me like the black dorm and how come you're not living in the women's dorm or this and that. So it was just really, really judgmental. Um, and so I was just like, well, I'm in college now. I don't even have to do this Muslim stuff anymore. So I just like, um, I did not like it, 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 which is like, it was so sad because I know growing up, like the masjid in Syracuse, there's only one masjid. It was on the campus of Syracuse University. And so like the MSA students often volunteered with the youth group. And so they were like pretty cool. And I remember thinking like, wow, I'm going to go to college and become one of these cool MSA kids. And I got to college and there was nothing cool about the MSA kids. For- <laughs> Oh, that's so sad. At least for me. And so then it was just, and I didn't really struggle too much with it there um, because I just didn't have time to process it. Like, I think for me, when I really began to process it was, um, again, when I met both of you was like, like in the months after the Chapel Hill shooting, I was processing it with a friend of mine who's Sudanese. And I was just like listening to her talk about her experiences, which were like completely the opposite of mine. She um, mostly socialized with Muslims on her campus. And she she was like in this space of her life where she was trying to better understand her black identity. Um, she's Sudanese, but like, what does blackness mean to her being from Sudan, but then also um, being like racialized as black um, in the US and so on and so forth. And for me, like, I was more, it wasn't so much my Muslim identity that I was trying to figure out, but it was like, how do I connect to folks on a spiritual level? How do I connect to other Muslims? Like, this is now a big part of my life um, internally, but like, there's so many rituals to being Muslim and it's just really difficult to continue practicing those without having other folks to talk through some of those things. And then uh, when things just happen in the world, I want folks to process it with. So like, um, I remember distinctly, like after the Chapel Hill shooting, I remember reaching out to her, we spoke about it. And then, um, and then a journalist reached out to me a couple weeks later, maybe it was a day later, I, I don't even really remember it and asked me, um, so like, do you feel like the uh, Muslim parents are telling the, like are giving kids the like the talk now and so like similarly to how like black parents give kids the talk and I was just like well like there are people who are black and Muslim I mean they're black Muslims who've been hearing this like all their lives and so just like that's when I first started thinking about like what does it mean to like be both black and Muslim and like things happening in the world and like really like grappling with both of these identities and being pulled in different directions and how can one be be both at the same time. And then like, I thought back again, um, probably because of my own training in higher ed at the time, you know, like I was um, either in coursework or wrapping up my coursework, but all I heard about was college students and sense of belonging and so on and so forth. And so I was like, well, I made the decisions that I made, but like, could there have been other decisions that people could have made? So I just wondered, like, how do people make those decisions? Uh, and like, how do they experience college at the intersection of these two identities? And so that's when I embarked on like, okay, I'm going to put my researcher hat on instead of just like calling up my friends and asking them just like for 10 or 15 minutes, like make a whole research study out of this. I was being trained as a researcher in the study of higher education. Uh, and so I then had the question, how do black Muslim women experience college at the intersection of their racial, religious, and gender identity. When you've been speaking to young women that are in college currently or in the past, what have you found? 
I defended my dissertation proposal in October of 2016, which means I started data collection in November and um, it was like several months process and it ended in February. And so that was just like like a politically really insane time um, in the country. And so like so many things came up in a way that I couldn't have planned for it at the time. And so that was just really interesting. And I think even if I had done the study with the same exact women like next like November through February I would have gotten completely different not completely different but drastically different um results because there was nothing in my uh interview protocol or in my study design that was that was focused on the election or Mm. about the socio-political climate but that that was like almost all that came up in in those conversations so one of the things that I've I've um, learned from the study is that, like, I mean, not just this study, but just like other informal or formal conversations I've had with Black Muslim women in college is that the folks in college now like experience the world so much more differently than we do. Not just like experiencing college, but they're so much more active than people that I've spoke to like our age. And so, mm-hmm. like, one of the women I spoke to, I remember she said this, and I just felt so old. She said, well, like, high school was the start of her activism because that's when, like, Black Lives Matter started. Uh-huh. And I was just like, well, I, like, I yeah. was, like, done with, like, two degrees by the time Black Lives Matter started. And so it was just, like, really, uh, it's been really interesting, but then also so inspiring. Um, and so I think with social media, with um, hashtags and um, all of these different things, people are coming together in ways they haven't before. And so it's like really fascinating the tools that they have at their disposal to really be active and be aware of things have been um, just really fascinating for me to watch kind of like as an older sister kind of way. And I'm just like always so proud and so excited to see like what's coming out in the world um, from these women. And so as far as like what higher education institutions are doing, the answer is really not much at all, which is like really difficult for me, not just personally, but then like this is something that I'm going to be asked about at my defense. Like what can higher education institutions do? I was just going to ask you that. (laughs) Yes, they're totally going to ask me that. And I've reached out to several of my mentors like in advance of this question because I've watched them in other um, dissertation defenses and they always ask this question like what can higher education do to support insert population here and I don't know the answer to that question so I've like proactively asked them like can you tell me the answer to this question that I know you're going to (laughs) ask also like in talking to some of these women I asked them like what makes you all able to overcome some of the challenges associated with being like um, of these identities and so at the heart of it has been finding community so many of them connected with other Um, black Muslim women on social media or folks in their communities. And so like, that's something that I that I've done myself, and I'm not doing it through the context of a higher education institution. So what keeps coming up over and over again is like the importance of virtual spaces and representation of someone of all of your identities, but they're not being pictured because of those identities. It's just like they're a regular person studying. And so like those things have been really powerful. And so one of the things that I talked about with one of the women was that like in um, black spaces. So like my um, undergraduate dorm was like a black space, but then like there are others that are like student centers where students don't live. And so there are like images and pictures. And so people have paintings. And so like there's often something of like 
the black church. And so if you have something representative of Islam in there, that makes people feel that much more comfortable or conversely in like Muslim spaces to have like African flags as part of something uh, as, as something that's seen as part of the Muslim world. Like those visuals are really powerful. And I'm not much of a creative, so it's really difficult for me to like think too much about those spaces. But I just think about what's been helpful for me. And um, the, the, those are just some of the things. It's amazing how some of those small things can go a long way, right? Like so much of even just choosing and navigating college is visual. Like even when I think about like visiting campuses, it was so much about like the feel and like, do I see myself here? So to ask yourself, like literally, do I see myself here? Like, am I on the walls? Am I in the flags? Am I on the curriculum? Like, I, I think that's incredibly powerful. And like the more that these institutions can do to show that, you know, you can bring your whole self here and it's okay. And we see you and you're a real person. You're not, you know, a fictional character. Then that's... That's, I think that's a really a great recommendation. You specifically have been exploring the experiences of Black Muslim women. Why not men? Why not Black Muslim men? So when I initially embarked on the study that where I met you two, um, I actually interviewed 10 people and two of them were men. And their experiences, like, I mean, they talked about how, like, they played basketball. <laughs> and, um, like, of course, I, I just, typical. Like, <laughs> be so stereotypical but it was just like the experiences like it was just kind of like yeah you know I never really thought about that um but then funny like (laughs) looking at like the transcripts or just like even like looking at like how many minutes I spoke to each of the women um almost all of them I spoke to for at least an hour um there was one that was like 27 minutes um but the men it was like like struggling to get to like 15, 20 minutes. There was just nothing there that was robust enough. And so I knew that, again, from the academic standpoint, if I were to write a manuscript on this, people would ask questions about like, okay, we would have liked to see more about the experiences of men. I just wouldn't have had it. And so I was just like, okay, somebody else can do it. And then I also think um, about my own positionality. I think um, in these articles, we often talk about like our positionality, our relationship to the participants, the experiences that they've had, how we um, either put our own subjectivities to the side or incorporate them in the interpretation of findings. And the reality of it is that I've never experienced uh, life as a black man, as a Muslim man, as as a man in general. And so, uh, and because both blackness and Muslimness is so gendered, uh, I think uh, it's not like, like often other in other pieces is just we just do a sample and some are men some are women but I think because I'm talking about identity and a lot of times our our experiences with being either black or Muslim are so gendered um it was going to be a very difficult piece to write while also um being able to tell the story of the men and I just didn't feel equipped to do it it wasn't planned in the beginning but like now it's so intentional that I've focused on women and in general like I I think um personally I'm just like all about women and sisterhood and things like that and I think that's just a theme that that I've had over the course of my life and so I think the fact that now it's culminating in this dissertation that brings together all of these like different social identities that are really important to me is like something that I'm really happy about Nina, I like was thinking about my brother and the way he experiences college is so different from how I experience college. It's literally like, oh, like I ain't got no worries. Like I'm good. Oh my God. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> also, it costs like I also don't you think that some of that has to do with like 
you were saying like blackness and Muslimness is so gendered. And I was thinking about like pop culture representation, right? Like we got Muhammad Ali, we got Malcolm X, we got, you know, like all of these, you know, Hakeem Olajuwon, like we have all of these like strong, like black Muslim men that like exist like in the, the, the consciousness like of people. And I feel like, like as black Muslim women, we don't really like have that. So we can't just like go to college and like let it rock and like be ourselves because like we don't exist in people's minds. Like we're not there yet. Yeah, for sure. Has there been an over like arching challenge that black Muslim women have expressed to you that they face when going to college? So actually, my research question was like, how do Muslim women experience college at the intersection of these identities? But then also, how do they make decisions on whether or not to perform each of these identities? And so like, that's something that I think people have struggled with. And I think with with that performance, a lot of times what comes up, like the first thing people think of is like wearing the hijab. But I also want to expand our understanding of what a performance is beyond that. I think people perform identity by even something as simple as a Facebook post uh, about like Muslims. And so sometimes if they don't wear hijab, but then like people like this is like they're coming out as Muslim kind of thing. And so like I know like there there's definitely been for me like one of like a process of that, which has been like people pointed out like, hey, you're more vocal about this. and It's like more clear that you're Muslim. And so like th- those are some things that are just like fascinating, like different ways of performing it. This conversation has really been just like taking me back, like taking me back to this like moment and vulnerability and uncertainty and, and being so young and, and trying to figure out like who I am. And, and like you said, like how I'm performing who I am at different in different places with different people. Um, and so given that, you know, you've had so many of these conversations, you've had so much life experience. Now you've had your own negotiations with, you know, how you present yourself like out in the world. What would be a piece of advice that you would give, like, what would you actually say to someone, some 17 year old, like going off to college in the fall who like might be listening right now? That's actually one of the questions I asked my participants. Some of the things that I thought were most powerful were just things that I wish I would have heard, which was like, be yourself. And it's like, we hear those things over and over again. But I think in this time of like, everything is so politicized. It's like there's value in being different. And I think like, one of the things that one of um, the women said is like, in college was the time she transitioned from fitting in to standing out. And so like really um, taking advantage of those things and those things that make folks unique, really be able to take ownership of who they are, their backgrounds, like the backgrounds of their families, the like joys that that comes along with, but then also the traumas that they carry and so and the sacrifices that were made so that they can be on that campus. And so really keeping that at the forefront of their mind. That's such awesome advice. Where can people find you and your research? So you can find me on Twitter at Sheba Therapy. Um, I also have a website. It's not as updated as my Twitter account, um, but it's ninadowd.com. Yeah, like I often tweet about these topics and my own random experiences in life. So definitely um, follow me if you enjoyed this. I look forward to whatever book you ultimately end up writing, whether it be about the Muslim woman college experience or best smoothie recipes. I think they will be major contributions to society either way. Thank you so much for having me on.
We are so blessed to have two of our closest friends here from college, Monet Spells and Bafwa Darko. We're a little bit nervous about what they might have to say about us in college, but we're going to keep the tapes rolling. Mecca, when did you and Monet meet? Me and Monet hit it off on the first day. I think early on at class, you and Bafwa also hit it off, right? Yeah. At, what's it called? Spring Open Campus, Bafwa, that we, we went to? Yeah, a class that I met at Spring Open Campus, which is when we were still high school seniors. Yeah. Wow. What were your, like, first impressions of each other? Bafwa, you go first. <laughs> of course you want me to go first. Of course. <laughs> um, I, I loved the class when I first met her. And I don't think at the time I really realized why. But I think <laughs> it does. Um, well, sure, so she's a great person. Aww. She's funny. And she's sweet. She has an adorable laugh. That's um, true. She didn't, like, also I pressed my hair before Spring Open I Campus. I and my hair smelled like burnt hair and it was terrible. <laughs> and she still wanted to be my friend after that. What? I didn't smell Beautiful. any burnt hair. You look great. That's <laughs> Although black I love. Will... That's black love. I know. I feel like the same thing, Bafa. Like, I was trying to think, like, what was it exactly? But I, I don't know. I feel like it's that thing where, like, the cosmos, like, drew us together. Because immediately I was like, oh, she's totally going to be my friend. And we're both coming here. <laughs> And then I wanted to ask her to be my roommate, but I was too scared. It's probably for the best that we never lived together because living together <laughs> can ruin friendship. But um, I just knew that we were going to be friends. Yeah. And you guys were friends like all four years. <laughs> yeah. All four years. Oh, and then I, so this is like kind of like a magical like movie story. So when we actually did come to Wellesley and Wellesley has this thing where you have to jump in the lake. I remember this moment where we we didn't jump into the lake together but we're both in the lake and then we see each other like from across the lake and we're like oh or did i make that up Bafa, did that actually happen or did i just like dream that i don't remember so (laughs) maybe it did this is a vision you had for your friendship that's literally a vision that i've had for years so i'm just gonna go ahead and say that that happened (laughs) mecca and monet what about y'all how did you two meet and develop that friendship. Monet. So I think that the beginning of our relationship was a little less serendipitous, um, more or less because Mecca was very adamant about being friends with the people she was friends with. Um, <laughs> we, met, <laughs> we met at a program called Pathways, which is like a pre-orientation for first years at Wellesley. And so we all lived in a dorm together. Um, and she's like, so now is the time where we go sit and watch Keisha Cole. And so we would all go together. I like facilitated group <laughs> friendship time. Yes. Around like, Keisha Cole. Oh, oh yeah. That was a big part of the formative years of our friendship. Yeah. Um, we all had like nicknames and became really close during this, you know, what, week and a half, two weeks. Um, and then we go off into the greater campus and we had the opportunity to make other friends. And that never quite happened. Um, I think on one point, because I was like, well, I really like these people already. So let's continue to be friends. Um, I think that was Mecca's side. I'm speaking for you. Mine, um, though, was I came to Wellesley having grown up in a place where not everyone really understood my humor. Um, being that it's like super sarcastic, but also um, sometimes I make joke, jokes about politics 
the same way I could about Keisha Cole. Um, and I made some like fighting joke and Mecca laughed at it. And I was like, oh my gosh, not only <laughs> funny, but I can be like smart and funny. And she laughs. And it's like the biggest laugh I'd ever heard. Like, oh from- <laughs> yeah. um, also, isn't it crazy yeah. that all four of us, like pretty much our main uh, white socialization happened at Wellesley College? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like we all come from like pretty black places. Yeah. Um, and like being like nerdy, mer- nerdy black people. And then um, like, wait, going to place. I yeah. actually never said I was a nerdy black person. Oh, <laughs> you don't have to say it. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, weren't you like captain of mock trial team? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. We're moving on. Back to the I can list out your resume if you want to go there. <laughs> but wait, Monet, it's so funny that you say like your memory was like me facilitating friendships because you also did that thing that everyone does in 2005 where like you add people on Facebook like before mm-hmm. you get to school because you're like in the Facebook group that's like Wellesley class of 2010 um, so I remember you actually adding me on Facebook before we got to Pathways so I felt like that was an invitation for me to then plan our friendship together oh I support that then <laughs> <laughs> yeah very first Facebook friend from Wellesley did not make me confident that I would make friends at Wellesley. (laughs) And I was like, oh crap, like this is going to be a doozy. And then Mecca. And I was like, okay, all right. And I got there and I was like, oh, this is going to be perfectly fine. (laughs) I I will say one of the things that shout out to Masharni Franklin, she coined the term Wellesley college for weirdos and how like we all are like kind of weird, whether your weirdness was like being reading Harry Potter or like being really into science and technology when you're 16 years old, (laughs) Monet, um, like everyone then goes to Wellesley and like becomes a little bit less weird by virtue of like being around each other and then being like, oh, like it's totally fine. Like I'm not weird, even though you still are, you're just on a campus where everyone else also is weird. Um, Harry Potter and STEM don't seem like good measures of weirdness because those seem perfectly normal to me. Just adding to that, I just feel like I have to include that Monet and I went to high school together. Yes. Oh my God, I always forget that. And I always did feel weird. I remember in high school being laughed at by a bunch of guys who watch anime for liking Harry Potter. (laughs) 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 The double standard. (laughs) So... I don't know, like, I guess in other places that was normal, but maybe in PG County or maybe just in my friend group, it was not. So Wellesley was like a safe haven for me to be able to. <laughs> I 100% agree with you, Papa. Thank you. Also, it's funny that y'all went to the same high school, but also from same area, PG County. And like Mecca and I are both from Atlanta. So I'm just like, that's so interesting. <laughs> It is. And I do want to add that I do think that kind of, I mean, at least for me and you, Klaus, I know that kind of played a part in our Absolutely. friendship because we both had similar cultural references and similar backgrounds. And I had to go to college to realize that growing up in a middle black, class black community is not normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very rare experience in this country. Yeah. And the class was one of the few people who had that same experience as me. And I remember really at our first ethos meeting, she having the same reaction to it as me and being like, okay, this is my friend. Yeah. And like ethos is the black students union or did we say black or do we say African-American? Maybe black. Students of African descent. Oh, students of African descent. Yes. Yeah. That is what. Also, Monet, do you remember when we realized that we were the only, like, black girls in our class that we knew who had gone to public school? 
that was definitely like a bonding experience for us because we had this super racist writing teacher who like independently in office hours like told us that because we went to public school and because we were black that like writing would never come like naturally to us and I remember us like discovering that together and then being like I think this is racist but I'm also a teenager so like is this adult being truthful or I don't know. I had the same racist writing professor who said something similar to me. Wow. Like I remember my sophomore, junior year, Monet telling me that and I just had this flood of relief. Like, oh, it wasn't me. I mean, like the things he was saying were right. Like I did go to public school and I did grow up around predominantly. <laughs> You're like, people. truth, truth, <laughs> not a lie. Facts only. Like, don't think that means I can't write. Like I'm here for a reason. But I guess, right? And then maybe that's a, that, that's like a racist tactic, right? You wouldn't say that in a group of people where we could look across the room and I'd be like, Mecca, did you just, that sounds wrong, right? Yeah. When you're in office hours and you're just listening to one person, you're like, mm, okay, I mean, I guess you've yeah. been doing this for longer than I have. God. Yeah, but I do feel like that's part of the importance of like having other people around you to be able to talk to about this, right? Like if I had only had white friends or like non-black friends, like, who would all come from prep schools and, and college and I told them that story, they would probably be like, oh my God, that's terrible. Mm, yeah, yeah, you probably do need to work on your writing. You should probably <laughs> yeah, go like our public school system has failed you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so sad. I remember having to take that um that math test in order to like test in to like the science and math classes, which I did not want to take. But that was like the saddest moment for me when I like took this math test and I was just like, dang, I don't think I got any of those questions right. And you know, like in the movies when you think you didn't get any of those questions right, but then you did not, not for me, I got them like all wrong. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I remember a lot of um, like, women of color there like a lot of them didn't do well on the test and it's like when you don't do well on the test then you have to like you're set back and like your math classes science classes pre-med and all of that and I feel like if anything like at Wellesley it's like those moments where I was like wow we all come from different places and like I don't see any of the white prep kids like being held back yeah for sure wait Um, what else do you guys remember about like your college experience like the good and the bad so and from the academic train, um, so I was a computer science major and had some advocates there that were just really awesome professors. Um, but my best experience with understanding what it meant to have an advocate and have someone who really had your back, um, I was taking this linguistics class because that seemed like a good idea. <laughs> um, and linguistics is really hard because you just spend all your time talking about like, the tongue placement and the phonetic pronunciation of these words. And it didn't make sense to me. It wasn't clicking. But I was taking this class with uh, a professor, Angela Carpenter, who was... Yeah, Angela! Uh, um, what She used to be the, what, director of Harambe House, which yeah. was yeah. Yeah, the house for Afri- uh, students of African descent. And um, I went to her office hours on the brink of tears, and was like, so I had one question about the homework. I actually had 10 questions. There were 10 questions on the homework. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, let me just ask like the biggest question I have because I don't want to go in there and seem like I'm stupid or like I don't really understand what's happening. And she's like, well, let's just, you know, go over it from the top. And I remember she had like 15 minutes left in her office hours and we sat there for two hours total going through my entire homework. 
And we went through me like trying to struggle through one. I cried all the way through it. And she's like, no, 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 you can do this. You've got this. And like, we did my homework. And at the end, she's like, you know the answers. Just ask questions when you have them. And that's the moment I realized how important it is to have people who've got your back, whether it's socially or professors or people you look up to, whomever. Um, and that really changed the way that I thought about not only my uh, the relationship I had with professors, but like what it means to seek advocates. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then she recently got tenure, maybe a year or two ago, and I sent her an email recounting that story and how it changed me and cried as I wrote that email to her. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> I sure love her. Uh, so Angela Carpenter, you're you're awesome. Shout out to Angela. Yeah. I don't know that she's a listener, but she should. Thanks, <laughs> Professor Carpenter. <laughs> Bafa, what about for you? What's the we can start with the good. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know I have a long list of yeah. um, a very long list. Um, but I will say that um, coming from Prince George's County, there became a point in my life where I never thought I would have friends who weren't black <laughs> real, <laughs> after <that's> real. <laughs> too many negative experiences with, at Wellesley. <laughs> um, but our senior year, we did manage to find like a cool group of friends from different backgrounds. And I just learned so much that year um, and had so many great conversations. And I really, I really, really value the friendships I took from Wellesley and the community of all kinds of people who um, they're willing to listen, willing to have conversations. And I just feel like I grew up, grew up a lot as a person at Wellesley. I don't think I have one individual story, but I will say that I left with some really great friends who I can talk to about almost anything. Can we talk about learning how to talk to white people though? And because like, shout out to my affluent white friends that taught me about like cheese and vacation homes and like all of these things that like, I just like did not know about going into (laughs) college, but it totally was a culture shock. Similarly, like coming from Atlanta, coming from Atlanta public schools, coming from the West End, you know, like it's not exactly like a place where I was running into people that had gone to like Philip Exeter Academy and like whose great grandparents like had gone to Harvard and Wellesley and like just being around that, it was I think for both the groups of people, quite a culture shock. But I feel like often when we talk about culture shock, it is kind of centered around these like white rich people having to deal with like these like poor, like underprivileged black people and not like what it's like for us to have to bump up against their assumptions and weirdness. Yeah, all of that. All of that. Mecca, you want to share your good? Oh, my good. Oh, similar to Bafwa and and Monet, actually, I I do feel like my friendships, number one, like number one thing. And I know there are differences of opinion on this. But for me, like Wellesley was hard, but not hard in a way that crushed me. It was hard in a way that like showed me what hard work looks like. So that by the time I was gone and I was still like working in that way, I felt like I was like more prepared and I knew, understood like my own level of excellence and what wasn't that um, more so than some of my colleagues and peers that were also like coming out of college. And just like, I don't know, it's, it, it's such a weird concept to put like 18 to 22 year olds like all in one place and be like, you know, man, you know create this social environment where we're kind of in charge and calling the shots, um, even though all we have known up to that point is what other people have told us. So it was just like a cool experience to be in a place where no one knew me. And I'm really into like reinvention. So like deciding who I was and everyone just having to take that at face value. (laughs) Yeah, I like totally feel you on the reinvention part. And I think the best thing I did at Wellesley is like, I came in 
acting like I was still in high school with like just in terms of activities where I was like, yeah, I'm going to do mock trial still. And like, yeah, I'm going to still play my violin. So I was like on a mock trial team. I was like miserable. I was miserable, but I was damn good <laughs> just to be clear. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'm still doing the same things that I was doing in high school, but I was receiving like no satisfaction from it. And I did it for a whole year. And then I was like, wait a minute. I don't have to do this. Like, why are you doing this to yourself? So I like quit all of that. I was like, I'm not trying to be a lawyer. So forget about these poli sci classes. And like a really good thing I did was just like stop doing things that like weren't bringing me any happiness. And like those were things I didn't have to do. And so it allowed me to like broaden my social life. Um, And again, like same as y'all, like make friendships. Because I do think that, for me, that was the most important thing in college. Like, yeah, like don't spend time doing things you don't want to do and like miss out on other opportunities. Okay. Uh, now the yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about it. Let's get into it. Yeah. Let's start with Bafa. Cause, um, you said you got a really long list. Yeah. Would you like to facilitate this conversation? <laughs> um, no, because then the entire episode will become like a therapy session. <laughs> um, but I will say um, something like I've spent a lot of time since I've left Wellesley thinking about Wellesley and what went wrong for me. And, I, and I do feel like I internalized a lot of the racism I experienced at Wellesley. Like when people told me I couldn't write, I really did think I really thought I couldn't write. Yeah. Like I really thought I was an affirmative action case. Like I really, like I really internalized a lot of the things that I heard and saw and felt at Wellesley, and I didn't really know. It wasn't that there weren't people to speak to. I just didn't. I couldn't even begin to like think about what was happening to me to sit down and think I should talk to someone about this. Yeah, and it's such an unfair burden, right? To to, like place on you to have to like deal with this and then like know how to like come back from it. And I can honestly say that it wasn't until like the day I graduated and I, I remember like flying home and then just being like, okay, now what? I've gone through all of this and now what? <laughs> and then I had to go through this long period of just unburdening myself. And it was hard. So when I think back at my time at Wellesley, I think about depression. I think about just thinking my, of myself as lesser than other people. It, it's not great to think about. <laughs> I will end it there. Monet, did you have any similar experiences and just kind of the things that were really challenging about your college experience? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just just okay, leave it so, there. Disclosure, Monet is like Miss Optimistic, Miss Positive Petunia. So I think <laughs> this is a real challenge in itself. <laughs> well, I feel like when I think about the things that I uh, re- maybe regret at Wellesley, it has to do with taking advantage of some of the classes, right? Like like going to a women's college and never having taken a gender studies class seems like a miss. And so taking advantage of some of those opportunities. Although I feel like a lot of the shock that I felt came afterwards. And, you know, going to a high school where I was public school, predominantly African-American community and studying computer science, and then going to Wellesley, all women's college, studying computer science, and then getting out into the industry and being like, where did all these white men come from? Like, <laughs> <laughs> every computer scientist I know is black or a woman. Yes. And, and so a lot of the shock I felt was like, I felt prepared to defend my ideas. And I, you know, had already 
proven that I was confident and good at this thing. Um, but I was almost like, how did Wellesley not prepare me for this? Like, right, not prepare me to be the only woman and the only black woman. I was used to that part, but the only woman places. Um, but I'm trying to think about negative experiences during Wellesley and I'm having some trouble there. I mean, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> Klaus, what about you? Man, um, I think similar to Bafla, but not to the same extent. I, there were several times where I just felt inadequate. Um, and I guess the, the saddest part about that is I didn't realize that that was like clear to other people. Um, after I graduated, my mom was like, man, I really didn't think you were going to make it. Like, I thought you were going to come back home. And I was like, damn. Because <laughs> um, wow. I was just like really struggling. And I came from a school that was like mediocre at best. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I love Dang. it. Yeah, I love the school I came from for sure. I love it. I like, you know, um, wouldn't have wanted to go anywhere else, but I, I didn't know that I wasn't academically prepared for Wellesley. Um, and I think that was something that was really difficult for me. Like I was used to being a shining student and here I was, I didn't have the same like racist writing professor that y'all had, but I had this moment where he was just like, this isn't good. And like, not in a mean or rude way, but he was just like, I think you need to think about this and like try again and I kept trying and it still wasn't enough and like eventually I just like broke down and he was like whoa dang I didn't know you're gonna start crying um, but he was like very comforting in that moment um and it was just like I didn't know how to study because I had never really studied before and so I was taking the science class and my professor like asked me to come to office hours and she was like hey like so how do you prepare for an exam? Um, and I was like, uh, I just read over stuff. <laughs> um, and she was like, yeah, you should probably figure out how to study. So like I went to her office hours to learn how to study. And so it just, I, you know, I was in a place I'd never been before. That was really difficult for me. Um, and you know, whatever, I got over it and I graduated. But at the time I was like, dang, man, like, I don't know if I'm like actually prepared to be here in this place, which is, yeah, a really crappy feeling. Yeah, man. And shout out to office hours. I mean, me and Monet had a, a bit of a traumatic experience in one of our office hours. But for the most part, I do feel like that is the, the time that can make or break you, like knowing that you can go and like talk to your professors about stuff. And some of them will be helpful and some of them might be racist, but it's yeah. a gamble you have to take. Yeah, seriously. Oh, wait, one last thing. That science class I was in, this was like probably the most embarrassing thing that has happened to me at Wellesley, is that I was looking through a microscope pretending to look at something and then <laughs> the lab instructor came over and she was like yeah you're just looking at dust like you haven't even focused <laughs> the microscope and she was just like oh wait do you know how and this is like lab classes are the worst because you have a partner and like okay this is absolutely and I probably will, will edit this out no shade to Asians but like man they're really not trying to be some black girl's partner and then some like girl, black no. girl that can't look through a microscope <laughs> like hell no you also I mean to be fair we're not helping our cause <laughs> looking at dust that's true but that was like just like a really terrible moment but I should say even after all of that like I was considering a minor in bio because like I you improved were, I over the years and like the professor is really helpful. Um, but yeah, that was <laughs> um, as I'm thinking about it, the challenges I had with Wolsey were like coming from a high school where 
I know Shade was of the best there and not really fathoming that there could be people smarter than me. And the thing that made people smarter, better, whatever that thing is, is that, you know, going to a public school where you've taken advantage of all the resources you have and not realizing that there are people who grow up with so many other different, more, you know, and, and a bigger quantity of resources, getting to a place like Wellesley where everyone was the top of their boarding school, private school, public school, whatever it is, and all of a sudden being like, oh, so in high school you studied abroad and that's why you speak fluent Spanish. Oh, yeah. yeah. My teacher didn't really connect that you can conjugate verbs until my senior year. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's coming from. No, that's so real. You know that Chimamanda sample on Flawless where she's like, we teach girls to shrink themselves, to make themselves smaller. I feel like Wellesley does the opposite where they're like, all of you are so brilliant and, <laughs> and you need to bring the competition. And like every girl yeah. in class is like raising their hand, reciting their thesis and dissertation. And you're just like, oh, okay. And that was super intimidating for me. Like when I first got there, I think by senior year, I kind of figured out how I could contribute. And that basically everyone was just like assuming what they said was important. And I was like, maybe if I just like assume that, then it will be important. But I feel like I had possibly the worst like academic experience of the four of us at Wellesley because I didn't understand the concept of cumulative knowledge. I did not know that people were taking classes in the same two or three departments and then adding on to their knowledge throughout. <laughs> I was taking classes in different departments every single semester. So I'm in Econ 101 my senior year struggling. I'm in art history and theater and political science my junior year and having never taken classes in these because I thought liberal arts education was like take one class in each department and just like <laughs> learn how to learn in different ways. And so your girl was on academic probation not once, but twice at Wellesley. And fun fact, when I was sitting there in graduation and everyone was like, whatever, all your work is behind you. All the, you know, you've now graduated. Everyone here has a diploma. D equals diploma. I didn't have my diploma. I, <laughs> I had to take a class that summer because I had failed my science with a lab requirement. Shout out to being that bad black lab partner. I know. <laughs> so yeah, sad. Come back and take chemistry after I graduated. So it was just like academically, I was plummeted. I thought it was the end of the world when my advisor told me that I wasn't going to graduate in May and that I was actually going to graduate in August. But let me tell you, eight years out, has anyone ever asked me whether I graduated in May versus August? Of course no, not. No one no. has literally ever asked me that question. Oh, I will I say... Bear that burden by yourself because I was definitely up at Hunter College in New York taking a calculus class or something because I, in my like spring semester senior year, decided to take accomplish like the math credit for my computer science degree, which was just stupid. That was not a good idea. And after there were only four exams, that was the entire grade, no homework, no extra credit, no nothing. And after the second one, the professor was like, yeah, we should probably talk about alternative options. <laughs> like yeah. You could drop it now or you can like ace the next two, maybe. And I'm like, yeah, I'll just call yeah, it. Hunter. Let's call it quiz. Yeah. Yeah, yeah college was hard. Fine. It was so hard. And then I think just non-academically, because you guys talked about like racism and stuff like that. I actually think the biggest challenge for me in college was learning that I was not uh, what other people considered to be like middle class. <laughs> oh, that's 
that's real. And, yeah. And like the intoxicating allure of wealth. So like getting there and seeing like, okay, this is what girls wear here. So I'm going to look fly. I see we got our North Face. I see we got our Uggs. Yes. I see we got our Longchamp bags. Like, let me go online, see how much this costs. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I know exactly yeah. what you mean. I know exactly. I did that same thing. It was like eBay search long shop. Like, <laughs> or even like, oh, I need rain boots because I'm in Massachusetts. Let me get these hunters, and then going to Target and getting twenty dollar boots yep. instead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I, was really rough for me. Yeah, I will never forget. I was at a ZA party with a class in ZA, the society that a class was in. For those of you who don't know, and someone asked me to pass them their Patagonia. <laughs> And I had no idea what Patagonia was. And it was, I was super embarrassed because someone had to explain it to me. Like, what is that? <laughs> that also seems super pretentious. You couldn't just say, like, the black coat. Like, okay. Yeah, like, yeah. why? <laughs> I, just, I had no idea what it was. And then someone had to explain it to me in the middle of this party. And I was, like, super embarrassed. That's so yes, um, to me, and also like Wellesley girls loved this thing. They loved going out to eat, even though oh. we had like seven dining halls on campus. Oh my god, yeah. And so I'm like, why are we going out to sushi three times a week? And then it took me so long. It took me like two years to tell my friends, like, yo, like I work on campus job. I make a hundred dollars a week. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's the birthday dinners at Wellesley. People would want to have birthday dinners, and I remember going to one person's birthday dinner, and I was like, cool. All right, all right I'll just like order the cheapest thing off the menu. You, like I'm good I got my water and then someone's like hey we should all pay for the birthday girl and like meanwhile she's like gotten drinks like <laughs> dinner dessert oh I'm like as I'm at dinner I'm like texting either my mom or my sister and I'm like hey can someone deposit money on my account real quick like because this bill is gonna come back and be ridiculous like I don't have that <laughs> yeah it took me a long time to realize like I didn't have to pretend to be rich and I remember like having this like come to Jesus, like, you know, like conversation, sitting down with my friends being like, I can't go out to eat with y'all. I can't pay for your birthday dinners. And I was like built it up as this like big thing. And they were just like, oh, okay. Like, well, if we ever really want to go out to eat because we love fancy food, like we'll just pay for you. And I was like, I have no shame. I will accept your funds. And they were like, cool, we're all friends. And that, and that was that. <laughs> And I was just like, I, I'm out here using my entire paycheck to like pretend like I can hang with these girls when like that doesn't need to be the case. So if there's a lesson in that, I feel like realizing what <laughs> other people are coming with and what you're coming with earlier rather than later is great because I was like, okay, this is not their on-campus job money. This is like why they're being so generous with it. But I will say, you know, we're kind of dwelling a lot on, I feel like we've mentally gone back, right, until like actually being at Wellesley and like on that campus. But what are some ways that you feel like we've changed like since we've been in college? Monet, what do you think? So I've definitely taken that like, you know, as a woman, as a Wellesley woman, you can do anything, you can say anything, you belong in this space, you add value to this space, like to heart, like all the way to heart. And I think what it's, done is it means that, you know, later in my career, as I've come up with little microaggressions and people questioning, you know, whether I can do something or whether or not I know, it's like, uh, yeah, I got this and I'm great at it. And sometimes I don't know what I'm talking about, but you don't need to know that. And so I really appreciate the way it set me up for being confident in who I am. Also realizing that not everyone leaves college with like the best women friends they'll have ever. Mm -hmm. And 
And it was just surprising to me when I got out that not everyone had that foundation. And I became even more thankful for it, that having like really good friends and really thought about who I am and my place in the world a lot. So that by the time I got into the world, I was like, I know exactly where I am and where I'm going. But I'm also curious to hear about like Mecca, since you met Monet in college, like how do you think she's changed? Ooh. Um, so definitely co-sign like everything that Monet said. I, I mean, I really do feel like when I first met Monet, like I loved her immediately. And she was this quirky girl from PG County. She was like the physical embodiment of bright eyed and bushy tailed. Like she always had this like high ponytail <laughs> that was like super fluffy yes! and like just like bouncing. Like she, she, yeah, she didn't walk. She bounced. Like yeah. she literally like bounced like Tigger like all around campus. And it's been cool to like see her maintain that light and that joy and that like positivity and all that she does, but also to develop her clapbacks, to develop her like, uh, <laughs> which are not about to do is and like to like learn her power. It's like watching a superhero's origin story and like <laughs> actually seeing like, yo, like I am amazing and like I deserve to be here and like. You know, I think we talk a lot about entitlement and with regards to like white men, but I do think there's like a healthy sort of entitlement, um, similar to what Bafo was speaking about, right? Where like you can internalize like all these racist things and then be like, wait, but like, am I the worst? Like, should I not be here? But it's like, no, the opposite of that is like, I am supposed to be here and like, I am here and like, who cares how I got here because I'm here too. And like, I have things to contribute. And so I feel like the thing that has changed most about Monet since I've known her is just like really just like taking that to heart and like having this like commanding presence that still hasn't lost its positivity and joy, but has like a little bit more like, you know, like sharpness and like sass to it. And I just, I love it. Oh, and Monet, now you do Mecca. <laughs> <laughs> Can she answer how she thinks she's changed first or do you tell me to go? Oh yeah, that probably would be helpful. So I think, I don't know, like I, I do feel like a lot of what I was doing in college was like pretending and like feeling things out. It's like, I don't have any friends. I'm going to just like pretend like I'm friends with these people. And then like, maybe they'll actually be friends with me. And it worked. And like, <laughs> I'm glad that like, they just like, let me like pretend like we were best friends from like the moment we met. And then also same, like, I'm going to take this art history class and be an art historian for this semester. But like, I don't know anything about art history. But I so like fake it till you make it was really my MO in college. Um, I feel like I had a lot of imposter syndrome. I had a lot of like, issues especially because of my academic you know and Bafo was talking about depression like I definitely had some dark years there as well but I think since Wellesley at Wellesley I was chopping myself up a bit a lot um like we've talked about in previous episodes like in this setting I am black in this setting I am Muslim in this setting I am like raging feminist like really trying to like determine like what where I was like what kind of response that they needed and I feel like the biggest thing that I've been able to do a little bit better in the years and I've gotten better at it over the years is like putting myself back together again. And like, you can still see the lines like of the, the glue, you know, you know, like you can still see that I like can still segment myself like when appropriate, but I don't feel the need to do it because like, other people's comfort is not like my number one concern, like me being my authentic self like is. So I think I think that's probably one of the ways that I've changed the most. I don't know, Monet. How does that like mesh with what you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so th there's definitely a trajectory of you being in school and reaching this point where you're like, I'm not going to do the things that I don't want to do, and I'm not going to pretend to like things that I don't. And that was really refreshing to see because it was you coming into yourself. 
you've also been, you know, always very goal oriented, right? And so it's, I want to join a society and I did it. I want to go to India for winter session and you did that thing too. And so it's been kind of nice after we graduated to see that same goal oriented self, but in relation to life goals, right? It's getting to a certain place in your career, moving cities and kind of taking hold of life in a very actionable way when a lot of people um, who graduate school, in my opinion, myself included, kind of fumble around for a little bit, trying to figure out what it means to be adult and what it means to decide what's next for you. And so you have this pretty smooth transition into, all right, well, I don't really know what an adult means, but I've got these four goals and I'm just going to go achieve those goals and look like an adult while doing it. And so um, I think there's been this, yeah, that like cool trajectory of watching you grow into yourself in a way that's super efficient. <laughs> <laughs> like a robot? Not like a robot, because you definitely got a human aspect to it. But it's you and means that, you know, on one hand, you're, um, and maybe we all do this, but being super critical on yourself and am I fulfilled right now? And am I reaching my maximum potential? And, and am I doing the right thing? And like, meanwhile, you're killing the game. But by being so hard on yourself, it means that you're at least four steps ahead mm. because you're already thinking about what's next when you're on top of your current mountain. Oh, thanks, girlfriend. That's great. Hey. I love it. I'll take it. Um, now I want to hear Bafa. Bafa, how have you changed? In many ways, I feel very much the same, but I feel, well, one, I've seen and experienced more things, so I just feel like I'm smarter. I mean, that's obvious, but also, um, I think one of the biggest takeaways from Wellesley is that no one is what they seem to be. And so that anytime I feel like an imposter, I remember that everyone else is an imposter and it allows me a much greater freedom <laughs> to do what I want to do and not feel any lesser than anyone else. Like Monet was talking earlier about how she went into the world and we're like, world, who are all these white men? I also had this experience in Hollywood where I would meet these men and I'd be like, they're not better than me. I can do this. Mm -hmm. And that's not something I think I felt at Wellesley or even in high school. And I'm also just a lot more confident and I'm a lot more caring. And I think now more than ever, I'm, I'm always thinking about other people's stories. So even when I have like a negative interaction with people, I'm always trying to think about like what would make them say this to me or what would make them do this rather than just internalizing it and, and just, just internalizing it. I think, cause I think I feel those same things for you. Like the first thing I was going to say is that you're definitely way more confident. And I think that confidence too came, especially when you moved out to LA and like, I could see that as someone who watched you at Wellesley, like internalize those things that were like happening to you. Like, you know, that was like hard to watch. Cause you know, that's not something that someone outside of you can really help you process and deal with. And so it's like, I saw you go through that and I was like, man, when we graduated at Wellesley, like the best thing that could have happened for you. Cause you just like really needed to remove yourself from that place. And like, seeing you in LA and like flourish like, oh my god yes. yeah, like you're like at least from the outside looking in I'm like you're living your best life because like 
within weeks, like you had a job, you like didn't have a car when you first moved out there, but you're like, I'm going to get around. Like I'm going to make friends. I'm going to get gigs. And like to see you go through this whole thing, like on your own, like you didn't have a community when you first moved there. I'm like visiting you. I'm like, Oh my God, you have so many friends. You have a life. I like- know. <laughs> I like had yeah. like a capoeira class with her. Like when I went, I also <laughs> low key felt like I was holding her back because when I moved to DC, she was living at home and we were just like watch Gilmore girls marathons every weekend then as soon as she left like she was like the glow up and I was like oh should I have let her go earlier (laughs) (laughs) no it's true and like you've like developed a whole skill set like you've been editing and doing all of these things it's also nice to see you do something that you want to do which I don't think that you really had the opportunity to do at Wellesley so yeah I see you taking risk and like really putting yourself out there I just feel much more in tune with the universe. And like when things happen to me, I'm able to think about them objectively and just deal with them in a more appropriate, more appropriate way. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Um, thank you. <laughs> Nicholas, you're up. You know, I feel like it's so hard because I've said this on the podcast before, but I kind of feel like I'm always changing. <laughs> so it's like at Wellesley, I think I also like went through a change. Like, probably several times. <laughs> I was going to say, a change or two. Like, let's be real. Yeah, I, I I, guess because I always change, like, according to my surroundings. And, pro- like, only people who are close to me really know kind of, like, who I am. And so I guess the biggest change that I've made, maybe more so after grad school, where I started trying to make more of an effort to just, like, be myself. And ca- kind of similar to you, Mecca. Um, except like I wasn't really a raging feminist or like <laughs> any of those prominent like themes. I didn't really carry labels. I was just like, oh, cool. I'm here. And like, I'm going to be this person because, you know, this is what this situation calls for me to be. So I think I've just been trying to do more of that since college of like, this is who I am. And I'm going to bring my full self like to work which was not a good idea to bring my full self to my first job. (laughs) That was not appreciated. (laughs) So (laughs) trying to figure out like, you know, these different parts of myself, which I think we're all always trying to do. Um, It's just something that I've I've been more conscious about. Bafa, how do you think a class has changed? Well, the first thing I'll say is that a class is someone who constantly changes. I will (laughs) she constantly was reinventing herself. (laughs) There are several editions of a class yeah. I went to college with. But um, as far as since after college, I think a class just knows who she is now. Like even now when you decide to change, I think you're very much aware of what you're changing and what about you, why you're doing it and what stays the same and what doesn't. When we were at college, a class definitely went through a lot as far as like how black and how Muslim she is. <laughs> yeah. Now, found the right formula, the magic formula that allows her to be who she is unapologetically on both sides of those things or all those things at once. Also, class, like, I hope this doesn't sound rude, but you're also, like, smarter. (laughs) That's not rude. (laughs) I think that's true. True. You are. I feel like you are a smarter person than when we were at Wellesley and you are more fearless, you are more articulate and you know what you want and when you know what you want, you go after it. But I also feel like you also just far more in tune with who you are and your, your many identities and how they work 
for you and how you present yourself. I just want to jump in and say cosign to everything that Wafa said. It was actually pretty surprising, Klaus, to hear you talk about like, you know, choosing and like, you know, trying to pick and all that kind of stuff. Because one of the things that I love most about you and that I've learned most from you is like learning how to be at peace with who I am and where I am, like at that moment. And like, it's also cool because I think when I went to college, I thought like this was the place that I would figure it all out. But it's actually been in the years since. Like I feel like living in Chicago and like you had this phrase that you'd always say, like when someone was like, oh, I'm hiding this thing from my parents or <laughs> I, I'm, I'm like doing all this. You'd be like, you can't be doing all that. Like <laughs> I've like, lived that it. So I've lived <laughs> it. And like I'm sure Bafwa knows like the most I think the biggest example of this is like when I would be at Wellesley and I would be like wearing my short dresses or like tank tops and then like I pack my bag home and it's like hijab, hijab, <laughs> like long pants. <laughs> It's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. And so that 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 was like a cool thing to like watch you like determine for yourself and share so openly with others. Like, hey, it is super exhausting to pretend. Like accept who you are right now, decide who you want to be next, and then like take whatever steps you need to do that. But like stop stressing out about pretending like you're starting from a different place. And like, oh that's that's a lesson I wish I knew when I was like 18, 19. But you know, it only took a decade to figure out. Just a decade. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Bafwa kind of brought this up, but yeah, like Mecca and I are Muslim. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> and I think we're both curious because I know Mecca and I both have like had this thing post Wellesley where like, I don't want to say we become like more Muslim. I don't think that's it, but maybe more just like kind of what kind of Muslim we want to be. Um, and involved in that has been like us getting married, like super fast. <laughs> And then, like, just calling you both, being like, hey, you know, what's up? Like, so I'm getting married, like, next week. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember calling you, Vafa, and you're like, wait, what? (laughs) And so I'm curious from your end, like, we've kind of gone through this transition. But for you, like, but maybe how our, like, Muslim, our identities as Muslims has changed since college and, like, how you felt that as a friend. I I've thought about this a lot, probably in the last year since I knew Mecca was planning to marry Riz and since they've gotten married, kind of reflecting back on our friendship and realizing that I understood Mecca and I to be exactly the same with a few differences. Like, you know, we're both strong black women, but she wears a hijab. Like we're both strong black women, but she observes Ramadan and Eid. Um, And... I have different hobbies and I'm a computer scientist and she's an environment, like, but, but that the things that made us different, the fact that um, she was Muslim was one of those things. And it wasn't until, until the year in which she was planning her wedding and having these conversations around what it would mean to get married and why this is important. I think at one point Mecca's like, this is important to me as a Muslim woman. And I was like, Oh, so our differences are a little deeper than, you know, the fact that we just have different hobbies or like different things that we do on the weekends or with our families. Um, And so it was, I think, informative year for me because it was like, this is my friend and all of her identities are equal and they're all important and they all make up who she is. And 
in addition to me being an advocate and an ally the way that I've been since the moment I've met her, it's like now the next step is me not compartmentalizing who she is and saying, yeah, that's my friend Mecca. And this is all of who she is and what she is. Um, And so, and I don't know why your marriage was the thing, maybe because like when you told me, I was like, we're strong, single, independent black women. Like, we don't need to get married. We don't need no man. <laughs> exactly. Um, but realizing there's, like, other cultural impl- like implications in that uh, was eye-opening to me. So funny that you say that, uh, Monet, because I I do feel like, I, I feel like, and we've, we've talked about this before, but I feel like I've never really felt with my black friends that I've had to compartmentalize that I've had to like play up or down anything. Maybe I've done that because of like my own insecurities, but not because anyone around me has like made me feel that way. It's actually been with my Muslim non-black friends that that has played out like more where I'm like, Oh, blackness is not understood. Whereas I always felt like my Muslimness, it was just like accepted as fact. Like, okay, yeah, you're Muslim. And like, you know, like if we'd go out and like people would like offer us drinks, I wouldn't even say anything. Y'all be like, Megan has a drink, get her a Coke. Yo, why do, why do people always do that to Muslims? (laughs) They're like, nah, she good. I'm telling you. Yeah. Yeah. And it was funny because I remember like actually having a crisis about that when I was going to college, like, what am I going to do? Like people just like drink all the time. And like, that's not something that like, I, I, I don't know how to navigate that situation. I haven't even like thought about like what my relationship to alcohol like will be. And I think like I mentioned that I didn't drink to you guys, but I hadn't even really like made that decision for myself. And like the first time we went somewhere, like, y'all were like, she doesn't drink. And then that just became like what I was known for. So it was like, God, like put you guys in my life as like these like guardian angels, because like, who knows, had I just like not had you to just be like, oh, I accept this thing about you, like as fact, um, whether I might have like made different types of decisions and had different struggles than the ones that I did in college. So it's really cool to like hear you reflect on um, on that, because I, I definitely recall it like a little bit differently and it it also was really cool this like wedding experience because I do feel like when you're creating a family and when you're creating an event around like what it means like what your culture means and like what your concept of family means like all of this stuff you you have to it is it's this really weird process where it's not just like picking out flowers and picking out clothes and a menu it's like who am I and like what is important to me and like how can I bring people into a space where I like am most comfortable and they can just like sit in that comfort and so it was like really beautiful to like sit in a mosque and like look out on the crowd and see like my Wellesley friends wearing scarves like with their iPhones up recording and smiling while Quran was being recited you know by a class and it's like what is this like combination of worlds? And it's just been really beautiful to be able to invite like different people who represent different parts of myself into a space and all of them just be like, yeah, like we accept all of this of you. So just thanks for being along for this crazy ride uh, over the last, how long has it been now? Like 11 years? That's crazy. Oh my God. Okay. A class in Bafwa, time for your love fest. Well, I'll get to the marriage thing later. Um, I will say that in a way, a class being Muslim and being somewhat religious. Well, actually, when you first came to Wellesley class, you were, like, very religious. I was, yeah. You were, (laughs) like, actually great for me because I was this girl who came from a home with strict African parents who didn't allow me to do anything. So it was just really great to have this friend in undergrad who didn't drink. I I didn't drink my first year at Wellesley for the most part. And it wasn't because I didn't want to. I just 
never really got around to it because a class and I would like yeah. stay in <laughs> and eat food and watch what? TV. All yeah, the time. literally boondocks. Like we also watched Big Love. We did watch Big Love. That made it. That was a huge part of first year. Big Love. Yeah. Too. Like we literally stayed in. And watched a lot of TV. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what we did our first year. <laughs> and I think I needed that kind of a friend my first year. Um, just because I, too, I just wasn't ready to go out and have that social life. And when I tried doing it, I always felt awkward and unwanted. So I just needed a friend. Who's like, okay, let's just yeah. eat bagels and watch TV. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so many pounds gained. <laughs> so many pounds gained. Exactly. Um, but I will say that for the most part... I knew Klaus was Muslim. I knew she prayed all the time. I knew there were things she couldn't eat and things she couldn't <laughs> all do. The time. But I never <laughs> just constantly in prostration, <laughs> mashallah. But I never like thought about it. I never thought of a class like I just in my mind I never thought of a class as like my Muslim friend. I just knew that she was my black friend, she was Muslim, and it, it is it was what it was. I feel like the moment I actually remember the moment where it really occurred to me that a class was Muslim and this was like a part of her identity that she was dealing with and it had nothing to do with her. It was our senior year and and one of our neighbors who was South Asian had brought her friends to come take a to come her friends were visiting. They were also South Asian. And she took them to a class's door and was like, Look. This girl, Eklash, she's Black American. And they were like, oh my gosh, she's Black American and her name is Eklash? Oh, wow. I don't think you ever told me this story. <laughs> oh, I definitely told you this story. Oh, yeah, okay, keep and going. She was like, and she was like kind of like bragging about it. Like, I have this authentic Black American Muslim friend. And I was like, is this what Eklash is going through? <laughs> wow. In the Muslim circles. <laughs> like, I just remember watching it and being like, oh my God. I had never thought about a class being Muslim like this before, but just watching that interaction made me realize it was this entire world of a class I had never really thought deeply about. As far as your wedding goes, it did, that also was another reminder. Like, I was shocked when you told me you were getting married. Yeah, I you thought totally were. <laughs> like, it kind of came from nowhere for me. Like, and I kind of was expecting you to be my single homie for the rest of my life. And then I was like, oh, snap, she's getting married as we like approached your wedding day and like thinking about all the arrangements and all the mass emails of people asking like, what do I wear to a Muslim wedding? What do I do to this, this? And I was like, Oh wow. Like I always knew it was a part of you, but I just never realized how much a part of you it was until your wedding day. And then I also had to realize that it's something that I had to learn about you. And it's also just something that I may never fully comprehend and that's fine like I kind of likened it to me being Ghanaian American it's always going to be a Ghanaian part of my life that people will not quite understand Mm -hmm. and that's fine but for a long time I kind of assumed that I knew everything there was to know about you and that you being Muslim was just like you know how we just also happen to be black but I, I remember that moment with that woman I remember at that moment being like oh my god like why would she do that And then it occurred to me there was this whole other Muslim world that you were living in. It makes me think about just like my own process, like coming into Wellesley and coming out, which is always like really funny for me to think about. Um, Because it was like, yeah, I was like praying and I came in like and I wouldn't even say now in retrospect, like very religious. Like I was just doing still doing like what my family and community told me to do and like what was important. Um, yeah. And then just like how I dropped mock trial and 
<laughs> violin. I also was like, oh, I don't have to do that anymore either. Um, you know, I can just go through this process of like figuring out what makes sense for me. And it's like, mm -hmm. I think I really didn't realize how important being Muslim was to me until like after Wellesley, where I just was like, oh yeah, I remember I used to like wear hijab. I remember like I used to like pray all the time and you know, I didn't really do those things anymore. And so just trying to figure out like, oh, like this is what it means for me to be like Muslim at 28 and thinking about what pri priorities matter more to me than others. Um, so like, I think the same of how you like realized it, I also realized it, <laughs> except for like, you know, people like tokenizing black Muslims I always knew that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you always do that. I remember just being like, oh, is this what you're going through? Are people yeah. treating you like a last of a Muslim? But like, I just at that moment, I remember being like, oh, okay. Uh, I feel like when we were in school, um, Mecca took this like very proud stance as being a lot of people's first or only Muslim friend. And so there was this, you know, big educational burden or maybe responsibility or maybe there's a more positive word than burden um, that you took on, which I, which looked exhausting as the four years went on. And one of the things that I'm particularly proud of with this podcast is that you've reframed the conversation, right? So instead of okay, fine, I'll explain to you guys what Ramadan is and I'll explain to you why I wear a scarf. And, and you know, instead of that way, it's like, I want to control the conversation and I want to talk to you about what it's like being, you know, a black Muslim woman and these are the things that I care about and this is how I want to frame the conversation. And I think that that does a great service to a lot of people, right? Because the way that you learn about other people, other cultures, whatever, is to listen to them talk and not to dictate the conversation. And so I can ask you questions all day about what it's like growing up in Atlanta or what it's like, you know, being Muslim or any part of your identity that I don't necessarily, um, didn't necessarily grow up with. However, what makes it better or more genuine is for you to just talk, right? And so to have this platform where it's this extended monologue in a way where you're just showing glimpses of your life is a great educational opportunity for your listeners and for the people around you. Oh, thanks, Monet. We're so happy to have your support. And it's like me and a class are just talking to each other. So it's nice to know that like even our friends don't mind listening and we'll have some <laughs> things to learn. And Bafa, did you have anything or are you all good? Um, I feel like there can't be enough said about how often you reinvented yourself at Wellesley. <laughs> um, I think that should probably be a future episode topic. I know. Yeah. Like, I feel like I ha I've barely scratched the surface of that. Um, <laughs> but I think for anyone who's young and listening, I think a class's journey is just proof that religion in a way can be something that provides you the framework to reinvent yourself and not restrict yourself through all those transformations. I never thought the class was not Muslim. It just became different. <laughs> um, it's like, like, so funny. You say that I'm sure other people would be like, uh, -uh. <laughs> no, I she feel like, well, I'm sure there are, there are always going to be people who say that. I mean, there are people who will say anything about anything. Yeah. Like, 
So, like, I watched the class go from someone who, like, covered and prayed every day to someone who would go out. To, like, the class became cool. Like, <laughs> her sophomore and junior year, who was super cool, who was you. always Thank you. Always, <laughs> like, like, people wanted her to be at the party. And then she transformed into someone who is still that but also religious and now like a spokesperson for her community. And I think that's awesome. But yeah, like when you guys decided to do a part two to this of like a class as many revolutions, like from natural hair to relaxed hair to, <laughs> yeah. to uncovered to like, like to all the things, like, let me come on. I have so many, I have pictures. Oh my God. Oh my yes. God. I don't want, I'm sure like our listeners are like, I need class. to know all about this. And there's no way any of you will know about all of the things that I have done. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from bringing some of our closest friends, you're also incredibly amazing women doing things out in the world. I mean, you have a lot of projects going on. And so if you want to share that, please do let um, people know where they can find you. Monet, go ahead. So I am Monet Spells. On Twitter, I can be found at omonet, O-H-M-O-N-E-T, or monetspells.com. And Bafwa? You can find me on Twitter. And if you search my name, which is B-O-A-F-O-A, you will find me. My my <laughs> handle is Bafwa underscore mood. Um, I also want to encourage all of you to watch the second season of Queen Sugar because I worked on it and it's amazing. Yeah. And that's about it. Cool. Thanks. Thanks so much, ladies, for joining us. Earlier, we joked with Nina about the black Muslim male college experience, and it was a little empty, but it made me realize I've never really asked my little brother Naeem about what it's like, so I sat down with him and he shared a little bit of his experience. So Naeem, when you were first going off to college, was that even a thought in your mind of like, oh man, like how do I juggle like being black and then also being Muslim? And then, of course, coming from the Muhammad schools where we've both been K through 12, was that something that you even thought about? Honestly, it never really crossed my mind coming into school. Uh, Coming from WD, I had a good foundation of how to keep my religion in check, how to keep myself in check, and just stay on the right path in different situations like that. So I think going off to school, it was just kind of second nature. I had been away from school a couple different times on like trips for track and field in different camps where we stayed overnight. So I didn't really second guess it. It was kind of just by nature. Yeah, so you didn't, <laughs> I'm like, this is so different from women because usually we'll be like, oh, like, am I gonna keep on my scarf? Am I not? So <laughs> were you like, should I keep wearing my Allah chain or should I not? <laughs> Actually, the Allah chain just got introduced like last year. That wasn't even a thought going off, but yeah, as you said, being a man, it's a little different. We just wear, like, T-shirts and shorts most of the time until it gets cold. So that wasn't really a factor. I think it differs a lot for women, but for us, it was just kind of everyday life. Your law chain is new. What made you get it? Just because it's cool? <laughs> nah, well, one reason, yeah. But the other reason was because I found myself kind of slipping on my prayers. I was missing them and not even second-guessing it. So now whenever I hear my dad go off on my phone... Uh, whenever I have like a doubt or I'm a prayer later thought or something like that, I look down and I just say, okay, maybe I, I should probably make this prayer. And it's just kind of a reminder to me. 
Now, did you find it hard to, like, keep up your prayers while you were in college? Because I know when I first went, I was, like, always making my prayers. And then, like, as each day went on, I was, like, making one less prayer, one less prayer. I was, like, I'm going to go to this party or, like, staying up late. It just, I don't know, it was really hard. Was it the same for you? It's definitely a little difficult, especially with extracurricular activities. Because since I do run track, majority of my day from, like, two to six is occupied by those activities so I sure gets a little hard then if I like start studying for a test I won't even hear my phone because I usually put it on silent so it gets a little tough it just that situation kind of makes me remember God a little more in the bad situations that I do come to so just it gets a little difficult but we always try to keep our faith in mind first now, was there a point for you where you're like, dang, I ain't making no prayers? <laughs> like, what made you be like, oh, wow, like, I should really start praying again? It's happened, not often, but enough to where I felt bad for myself. So whenever I have that feeling, I make sure I try to step up and make a lot more prayers than I usually do. And usually it's just because something happened that I didn't want to happen. That's when I remember it most. And honestly... I think everybody should have the idea to remember God even when the times are good. So that's what it usually helps me with. And I have never heard you talk about, like, one Muslim friend at college. (laughs) Do you have Muslim friends, like, from college? Are you part of the Muslim students group? Do you have one? We don't. I went to Coca College originally, and the only other Muslim person I knew was Jalal, who also went to W.D. Muhammad. But once I transferred to Limestone College, I have yet to meet one Muslim person or even heard of, like, a Muslim group. So it's not like I don't search for it. I keep on the lookout. But at the same time, I just kind of focus on myself and make my prayers myself. And if I do meet one, you know, alhamdulillah. But if not, you know, just stick to myself. (laughs) That's crazy. Not one? Not one. Are you sure? Not that I know of. I'll put it like that. And then, so, there's, like, no, like, Muslim chaplain at your school? No. It's originally a Christian school. So, like, there's even, like, a church on campus, but no, like, Muslim group or anything like that. That's crazy. So, it's not, so, I mean, I guess that means there's also not a space on campus for Muslims to, like, go and pray. Like, you would, that's crazy. Not at all. Actually, I've prayed in front of my roommate, uh... At Limestone, my room was very, very small, so he's seen me pray a couple times, and he's actually asked me about it, but as far as a space for Muslims to pray, there isn't one that I know of. Wow, that's crazy. And so, okay, so just being, like, young black Muslim male, like, maybe inside college, outside of college, has there been any, like, one challenge for you, like, um of just like publicly being a Muslim? Like have there been times where you've been like, I don't really want to talk about it? Or are you just like, yeah, I'm Muslim and what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, W.D. Muhammad taught me to have pride in my faith. So whenever there's a discussion like that, that comes up, I am like, I'm not hesitant to talk about being Muslim. Uh, As far as limestone, I haven't had to do it, but I did do it at Coker because we had a discussion on African-Americans and different type of religion. So I was kind of the one person in that room talking about Islam and being black. But as far as limestone, I haven't had to. But again, I have no problem speaking on it. All right. You seem to be pretty confident. You're like, I'm cool. I'm straight. No challenges. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's how you men are. You're just like, I'm cool. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's it's come with a lot of different people. Uh, It's come in a lot of different situations where people ask if I'm Muslim. 
And every now and then I get that one person who's scared, who's a little nervous around me. And the way I deal with that, I just talk to them a little bit more, let them know I'm not like an alien or anything. I just happen to have a different belief. And most of the time people respect it because it's something different. And a lot of times people ask more questions because they're more curious about it. Like I had a guy on my team who was actually, you know, wanting to be a Muslim and he, he came to me and talked to me about it. I gave him a lot more information and I think he's going to the army and he's actually very, very interested in joining the next, uh, Islam. <laughs> okay. You out here recruiting. <laughs> so we have a nephew who's headed off to college this fall. And do you have any advice that you would share, maybe just to like Muslim, like college students overall who are going back to school this fall, and or maybe it's just like advice, especially for young black Muslim males headed to college? Uh, all I could really say would be like, just to remember who you are before you got there. Remember your dean, remember who you worship, and remember who you're doing it for, because it's not just for yourself, because it's a temporary life at the end of the day, we're proving ourselves to a lot that we want to praise him. We want to show him, like not show him, but we want to show that we stay true to our faith and it's not that hard. Uh, just have confidence in who you are. Remember your prayers, of course. Remember to pray your dua. And like I said earlier, just make sure you don't go to a lot in the bad times. Stay with him in the good times. Wow, y'all, I did not know my brother was so wise. <laughs> this is like the first I guess, spiritual conversation we've had. Um, so I was definitely expecting different answers, and I'm just, like, over here wild. <laughs> well, it's very exciting. Naeem is going into his senior year. Uh, 2018. 2018. I'm so excited to see him cross the stage and graduate. So shout out to class of 2018. Yes, ma'am. Yes, and all y'all Muslim college students out there holding it down. Identity Politics is a podcast created by Ikhlas Salim. This episode was produced by Ikhlas Salim and Mecca Ali. Intro and outro music, RSPN by Blanking Kit. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.